Welcome to the Altruistic Libertarian, Advocate for a Genuinely Free Society. I'm Anthony Wheeler, and today we continue our series on pervasive intervention. Intervention comes in many forms, but always involves the government using force or the threat of force to keep people or organizations from doing one thing or another or re regulating behavior in a specific way. In Western democracies, various forms of taxation usually provide the government with the financial means to foster one form of investment over another, roads and highways, for instance, over rail, redistribute income from one group to another via Social Security, welfare, unemployment, fund national defense and federal law enforcement, U.S. Army, FBI, CIA, NSA, and support regulatory bodies, FDA, EPA. Socialist and or communist societies push this intervention further, often eliminating private ownership and directly determining specific life choices such as employment and education. Marx provides the classic summary, quote, In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolish private property, unquote. After acknowledging the productivity of existing regimes, and I quote again, the bourgeoisie during its rule of scarce 100 years has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together, unquote. Marx goes on to lay out the vision, including the material increase in production. Quote, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degrees all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total of productive forces as rapidly as possible." Unquote. Marx, and many socialists after him, assumed that taking over the government and intervening at every social level would increase material production and improve the quality of life. This bears repeating. Until recently, Every leftist political theorist asserted that a socialist regime would accelerate material production and provide the nation's citizens with greater material benefits and correspondingly a better life. Marcuse provides an example of such thinking. Quote, Technical progress would make for continued increases in the standard of living and for continued liberalization of controls. The nationalized economy could exploit the productivity of labor and capital without structural resistance while considerably working, reducing working hours and augmenting the comforts of life. And it could accomplish all this without abandoning the hold of total administration over the people." Unquote. It's odd that Marcuse believes that the nationalized economy would increase the standard of living while reducing working hours. Such an economy would require continued improvements in productivity, improvements that require proper investment and effective management. Socialist economies simply do not possess the expertise, the information, or the motivation to, to deliver such continuous improvements. The, assum the assumption of improved economic performance under socialism has always been theoretically suspect and now stands as historically disproven. No socialist economy at any point in human history, has outperformed its free market counterpart. Just consider East and West Germany, for instance, or take North and South Korea. The differences are stark and unmistakable. 
Consider this image taken of the Korean Peninsula at night. George Orwell offers another socialistic view, one that repeats leftist economic miscalculations and lists the conditions and the cost of improving humanity's quality of life. Quote, If you want a high standard of living, you must have a complex industrial society. But that implies planning, organization, and coercion. In other words, it implies the state with its prisons, its police forces, and its inevitable wars. Unquote. He is correct in asserting the need for complex industrial society to create and maintain our favored standard of living, yet incorrect on the basis for the effective operation of a complex industrial society. The genius of the free market, and the genuinely free society in general, is the lack of coercion required to manage complex markets, institutions, and technologies. What an effective, complex, industrial society requires is the free interaction of educated, motivated, and think thinking participants. As Hayek, Hayek writes, and I quote, Far from being appropriate only to comparatively simple conditions, it is a very complexity of the division of labor under modern conditions which makes competition the only method by which such coordination can be adequately brought about. There would be no difficulty about efficient control or planning where conditions so simple that a single person or board could effectively survey all the relevant facts. It is only as the factors which have which have to be taken into account become so numerous that it is impossible to gain a synoptic view of them that decentralization becomes imperative." Unquote. What needs to be emphasized is the essential commonalities of all government intervention. The only difference between governments and private institutions is the ability of the former to wield or threaten to wield violent force. All laws, taxation, regulation, Management and ownership directed by the government faces the same real-world circumstances as any human endeavor, any commercial or private institution. All human, social, and natural laws necessarily apply. George Orwell provides a nice summary consistent with Marxism. Quote, Socialism is usually defined as common ownership of the means of production. Crudely, the state, representing the whole nation, owns everything and everyone is a state employee." Unquote. One of the key implications of state ownership is the need for planning. Instead of a market determining levels of production and how goods and services will be distributed, central planners decide where, when, and how much of one thing or another gets produced and how those products and services get distributed and to whom. This marks perhaps the fundamental flaw, fundamental economic flaw in Marxist and all socialist theory, as the lack of a market and the prices that a market creates means that planners do not have the information necessary to make competent decisions. Quote, In any social order, even under socialism, it can very easily be decided which kind and what number of consumption goods should be produced. No one has ever denied this. But once this decision has been made, there still remains the problem of ascertaining how the existing means of production can be used most effectively to produce these goods in question. In order to solve this problem, it is necessary that there should be economic calculation. And economic calculation can only take place by means of money prices established in the market for production goods in a society resting on private property in, in the means of production. That is to say, 
There must exist money prices of land, raw materials, semi-manufacturers. That is to say, there must be money wages and interest rates. Unquote. Imagine yourself as the offensive coordinator of a football team and you need to call the play. But you don't know what down it is, what yard line you're on, how much time is left in the game, the result of the previous 10 plays, or the previous 100, what the score is, what play do you call. You can't manage or plan what you don't know, and in a complex economy, that is, all of them, the necessary information simply doesn't exist in socialistic states. Planners and managers in a socialist economy might as well be wandering the moors in a deep fog late at night with no light or compass. They have about as much chance of finding their way home in those circumstances as effectively producing anything. Without the necessary information, relying on central planning results in malinvestment, inefficient use of resources, and low levels of productivity. And it doesn't matter how knowledgeable or competent the planners. Quote, no single man, he, be he the, the greatest genius ever born, has an intellect capable of deciding the relative importance of each one of an infinite number of goods of higher order. No individual could so discriminate between the infinite number of alternative methods of production that he could make direct judgments of their relative value without auxiliary calculations. In societies based on the division of labor, the distribution of property rights affects a kind of mental division of labor, without which neither the economy nor systematic production would be possible. Unquote. I can't emphasize this point enough, as it pertains to all government intervention. The lack of information for key decision makers at all levels, coupled with the incentive to serve political interests instead of commercial ones, condemns socialist institutions to substandard performance. As a real-life example, I worked for a company that managed the IT infrastructure for a U.S. state. Given the nature of the contract between my company and the state, the presence of several other commercial entities, and the multitude of state, agency that, state agencies that were served by the IT infrastructure, every executive in this multi-entity conglomeration had difficulty making good decisions. Good relative to the citizens of the state who were paying the taxes and deriving any benefit because they didn't have the necessary information. They couldn't prioritize one project versus another. They didn't know if progress was being made in one area or if they were experiencing a general decline in another. They didn't know what anything cost. Most of the management activity was driven by antidote and opinion. Direction could change based on one chance encounter with an agency. Executive meetings were generally contentious and ill-informed. We argued about metrics and what they meant. When the state wrote the contract to provide support for the IT infrastructure, they didn't include provisions for a sales and marketing organization. Given that the market was fixed, roughly 30 state agencies, they didn't include the functions associated with sales and marketing, specifically product development. Under normal commercial, com normal commercial circumstances, the product development process goes through a series of stages that provide the information and the timing to make consecutive decisions regarding a new product offering. Later, later decisions are dependent on earlier ones, and they can't be effectively made simultaneously or out of order. The size of the 
projected market, for example, the projected sales over time, the selection of key features, the extent of capital expenditure, including new build-outs, equipment purchases, network extensions, and equipment capacity are just a few examples. Out of this process emerges the information necessary to establish a pricing strategy and the requirements for systems and processes to order, implement, maintain, and bill the new service. Without a product development capability, the state found it impossible to effectively make decisions regarding the deployment of new services. They cre this created inordinate stress on all parties because the leadership on all sides didn't understand what was missing and attempted to consider and deploy new products and services without a process or professional expertise and grew frustrated at the lack of progress. In this hybrid organization, part state, part commercial, the lack of credible operational data, quality, process, production, productivity, financial indicators, cost, margins, revenue, returns, and the absence of business cases, that is financial models, that develop various scenarios for specific products and markets used by decision makers to decide on future investment, made it impossible to make proper decisions, ones that would ultimately benefit the end user, the state taxpayer. The organization was inefficient, un unable to deploy new products and services, slow to introduce technical upgrades, and generally dysfunctional. Progress was painful, slow, and costly, to the point that several state agencies sought IT support outside the conglomerate, despite the state mandate. And it wasn't anybody's fault. The executives, managers, and engineers were generally competent, hardworking, and conscientious. The fault lies in the structure of the contracts, the incentives and damages largely unrelated to genuine business performance, the political nature of the environment, the criteria for management decisions based more on somebody's opinion than sound operational criteria, and the lack of any alternatives. The state agencies were captive customers. In that situation, it is impossible to operate at minimally acceptable commercial standards, ones that would provide any decent return for the state's ongoing and perpetual investment. One might argue that poorly managed companies are common, perhaps even the norm. Many people have experienced dysfunction in the workplace and often wonder how their employer stays in business. But in every case within a private institution, executives know the basic criteria for success, even if they have struggled to achieve it. It's true that executives appear to be utter fools by those doing the work, and especially to those who directly serve the customer. Sometimes they are, utter fools that is. Most often, however, employees simply don't possess the full context of the business or what the executives are attempting to balance. Cost versus quality, for, for example. Retention versus benefit levels. Product mix versus market share. Capital structure versus long-term investment. In any case, companies that are perpetually poorly managed eventually cease to exist. Marcuse points to another significant weakness in socialistic societies when he writes, and I quote, distribution of the necessities of life regardless of work performance, reduction of working time to a minimum, universal all-sided education towards exchangeability of functions, these are the preconditions but not the contents of self-determination, unquote. What Marcuse describes is an ant farm, not a proper society, not a proper human society. 
For those interested in reading an informed, fictional account of such a society, consider the story of 20th Century Motor Company in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And I quote, Well, there was something that happened at the plant where I worked for 20 years. It was when the old man died and his heirs took over. There were three of them, two sons and a daughter, and they brought a new plan to run the factory. They let us vote on it too, and everybody, almost everybody, voted for it. We didn't know. We thought it was good. No, that's not true either. We thought that we were supposed to think it was good. The plan was that everybody in the factory would work according to his ability, but would be paid according to his need." Unquote. The story goes on for several pages as Rand's analysis unfolds in this fictional thought experiment, one lived by too many people in recent history. China called it the Iron Rice Bowl, where people were guaranteed job security as, as well as steady income and benefits. Tacitus provides a perfect rejoinder to socialist thinkers when he writes, and I quote, Otherwise, industry will languish and idleness be encouraged if a man has nothing to fear, nothing to hope for, for himself, and everyone in utter rec recklessness will expect relief from others, thus becoming useless to himself and a burden to me. Unquote. Well, that concludes our show for today. We, we will continue our discussion of intervention next time. Until then, peace. <laughs>